This morning, Acts chapter 19. There was a chapter I thought I'd preach all at once last week, and then I thought I would finish it this week, and I just keep dividing it up, but that's probably for the best. Acts chapter 19, verses 8 through 20, so just the middle portion. We find ourselves in Ephesus, Acts chapter 19, verse 8 through verse 20. God's word. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things uh, of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples reasoning daily in the school of uh, Tyrannus. And this continued for two years. So that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick. And the uh, diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exercise you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches. And there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then uh, the man in whom the evil spirit was, uh, was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known by all Uh, both to all uh, Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus. And fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds, and many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Let us pray together. Lord, we thank you once again for your word. We understand, well, even sometimes the scripture says, do you know this thing was unusual? And it was here. And and we wish to understand it as well as we can. We ask you that you might help us, Holy Spirit, through the preaching to have a better grasp of your word and that you might make it uh, powerful unto our salvation and even to a life which is full of good works. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we continue on with the narrative in Ephesus, and as I say, going a bit slower than I'd originally intended. These are the kinds of things you, you initially start reading and you say, oh, well, I don't know if there's too much there, and then you begin studying and you realize, you know, there really is a lot there. And that's what I keep realizing uh, about this chapter. There's far more there than appears on the surface. We saw, first of all, this uh, interesting uh, mini Pentecost. I'll put that in quotes because it really wasn't, but something like Pentecost occurring in Ephesus. And now uh, we find uh, these these unusual miracles and the encounter with these exorcists. Uh, and, and that will take us as far as uh, we need to go this evening. 
We notice uh, before we get to that interesting and, again, what Luke calls unusual occurrence, that uh, the narrative resumes its normal pattern. Once these disciples of John, were, uh, they received the Spirit, they were baptized in the name of Jesus, they were Christians in every sense, things uh, returned to their normal course. There was preaching in Ephesus, verses 8 through 10. And by now, who could be surprised at this? Uh, This is Paul's uh, ministry. It was his ministry to those disciples of John. It's what he did everywhere he went. You remember what he said to the Corinthians. And recently he was in Corinth. He said, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach. Now, he wasn't saying that he wouldn't baptize anyone. Obviously, that's a kind of hyperbole. But he was placing a premium on the preaching. And so let us never be surprised to find Paul preaching. Of course he was. And, and, and once again, this follows a familiar pattern. He begins where? In the synagogue. And notice exactly what Luke tells us about his ministry there in the synagogue in Ephesus after uh, his ministry to those disciples of John. Well, he's ministering to the Jews first. And, and that's the kind of thing, uh, just given what we've read earlier Uh, that we need to pause and consider because uh, we find Paul in one place saying, I'm moving on from you Jews, I'm going to the Gentiles, but it seems that every new place he goes, he's willing to give the Jews another chance. Isn't that interesting? And it reveals something. Uh, I feel like I've been saying this over and over, but the point remains valid. It reveals something of the apostle's heart, which we saw in Romans chapter 10. My heart's desire for my fellow countrymen is that they might be saved. He earnestly desired their salvation, even as the apostle to the Gentiles. He never lost an interest in his fellow countrymen. And besides, he knew well enough as uh, an apostle to the Gentiles, there was strategic importance to the synagogue. It was a good starting point, not just to introduce Jews to the gospel, but Gentiles as well. He knew that he would find both classes of men there. He would find uh, Jews as well as God-fearers, that is, the Gentiles who were on some level observant Jews. And what he would find in both classes, but we find consistently, especially in the second class, that is the God-fearers, he would find people who were already interested in the scriptures. Now that was a very uh, obvious and a good place to start. I'm going to begin my ministry where the scriptures are already being read, where they're already being heard. That wasn't always the case, obviously, in Athens. That isn't what we find, or, or was it? Actually, I think it maybe it was, but at any rate, I confess I don't remember at the moment. We find the main scene is at the Areopagus, uh, but at any rate, that was his general policy. Now, one of the things we could ask is, why was it that uh, Paul had greater success with the Gentiles than with the Jews? There are important redemptive historical reasons. I preached uh, many, many sermons about that in Romans chapters 10 and 11. Uh, But part of the reason, just practically, that Paul had greater success with the Gentiles is because these Gentiles had, uh, we could say, a less prejudiced uh, bias uh, or or, uh, reading of the scriptures. And so they were more open to what Paul had to say when he opened the Bible and said, do you know that these scriptures point to Jesus Christ and he has come? Whereas the Jews were less ready to accept that message. They were still clinging to to Moses, even when a greater Moses had come. Well, I'm always interested to notice how Luke describes the activity, both the activity on the side of the preaching and on the reception. 
I don't think there's a single word that's wasted. He says, then describing the preaching of Paul here, uh, many things. The first thing he says is that he spoke boldly. That's the first thing he said when he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly. Well, let us see again and again. That's what the book of Acts tells us preaching is. It is impossible to read the book of Acts and not have this, this unmistakable impression made upon you that the preaching of the word of God is something more than mere speech. And Paul elaborates on this in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2 as well as 4. It's not just a man talking. It's a man speaking boldly even as he is full of the spirit. In other words, preaching is not a discussion or a chat a lot of modern preaching, let us put it in quotes, preaching, is that. It's just a chat. It's just a man having a conversation with his hearers. But that isn't what we find here. It is the bold proclamation, the bold speaking of the word of God. We also see just behind that, though Luke doesn't mention this, the reason that was the case is not because Paul was such a zealous man, though he was, but the reason that he and Apollos and Barnabas and, and Philip and so many others were able to speak boldly. And again, speaking boldly is just another word or way of describing preaching is because they were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But the next thing we see is that he did so for three months and in all he was there two years. Now, what's the significance there? Well, it should be obvious. The significance is that you can't say everything in one sermon. Sometimes, and, and uh, I'm, I'm not making this up, there have, been, there have been Christians who have said to me that you should be able to say everything in one sermon. And then you just need to keep repeating that sermon every Sunday. That a man who can't state the whole gospel or the whole of his sermon, or excuse me, the whole of his uh, a Christian truth in one sermon isn't really preaching. Well, my answer to that is that the Apostle Paul couldn't. He needed time to unpack these truths. He needed to spend many months and many years in places. He needed to follow up with letters. He needed to send other men to follow up the work. It takes time. But the next thing we see is the element of persuasion. And this is something Luke often, by now we should be used to it. He spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading the element of persuasion in preaching. Another essential element of preaching. Uh, another way we could describe this, Martin Lloyd-Jones in his Preaching and Preachers calls it the element of attack. Again, the man isn't just standing there presenting ideas for us to consider together. That's more or less what we mean by teaching. Let's consider an idea together. Let's see what we think of that. That's teaching. But preaching is something else. Preaching is aiming at persuasion. Or another way we could put it is uh, and we find Paul speaking this way, that the preacher is seeking to win his hearers or the preacher is seeking to do something to his hearers, to change them. Persuasion or reasoning. That's another word for this. He was reasoning and persuading. And so if you would persuade a man, where do you begin? You don't begin with his heart, do you? You begin with his mind. For the Christian is someone whose mind has been renewed and it needs to be renewed day by day, doesn't it? We're going to see that next time. 
be transformed or be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. And how does that happen? Well, I, I, I confess I've already prepared that sermon. I don't want to preach it in advance, but a great deal of that occurs in the preaching. You see, why do we need the preaching? Because we need to reason things through. We need to be persuaded. We need our minds to be renewed. So how do you win a man? You win a man by reasoning with him. You engage his mind. In other words, if we look at the unbeliever, we realize that the problem with the unbeliever is the mind, the reprobate mind that's given over to unbelief. It's his thinking. But the next thing we see is what he was reasoning and persuading them about. He was reasoning and persuading for those three months and then uh, and then nearly two years after that things concerning the kingdom of God. Now, what does that sound like? Well, that sounds like the preaching of Jesus, doesn't it? Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God. And does that mean that the preaching of the Apostle Paul was like that of Jesus who came preaching the kingdom of God? Yes, it does. He came preaching the same message. And of course, that must mean. And that must include all that it meant in the preaching ministry of Jesus Christ that we read of in the Gospels. Again, you don't see Jesus saying it all at once. Well, in a sense, you do. He says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And how is the kingdom of God is at hand? He was the one who brought it. He was the one who brought it into our very midst. And so it has been ever since. And so in a sense, you can say it all at once. And yet that very idea, the coming of the kingdom. And the need that brings for faith and repentance is something that takes a long time to unpack. How does one preach the kingdom of God? Well, one preaches the kingdom of God, and you can understand why this was evangelistic preaching. You preach the kingdom of God by preaching Jesus. And and what you say is that the kingdom has come with the coming of Jesus. You understand why the Jews were offended? And why others believed and became Christians as a result of it. And so the next thing we see, and now we're on the side of uh, the other side, that of the response, the familiar idea of the rejection of the gospel. Paul, like Jesus, came preaching the kingdom of God. And what did the Jews do? Well, they rejected him. Verse 9. And again, I'm especially interested in the precise words that Luke uses, how he phrases their unbelief. He doesn't say, actually, that they rejected the message. He does say some did not believe. But he he says in addition to that, in fact, the first thing he says is some were hardened and did not believe. Now, you should know by now from Scripture that this idea of being hardened has two aspects to it. And I've no doubt that Luke is including both. He's on the one hand saying these men were hardening themselves, even as Pharaoh had done. And yet at the same time, he's saying, as we could say of Pharaoh, that God was hardening them. They were hardened in unbelief. God was giving them over to unbelief. And so you understand that there's a deep mystery here. There's uh, the, the mystery In unbelief of God's sovereignty and reprobation. In addition to that, we see that they spoke evil of the way. (coughs) Some were hardened in unbelief and they spoke evil of the way. Well, isn't that what we often see as well? 
that men are rarely content to say, you know, I don't agree with that. I think I'm going to move on. In other words, Christianity, when it's rightly being preached, the claims of the gospel and of the kingdom made clear to men, there is no way to assume a position of neutrality. Uh, so that men either happily and heartily embrace the truths that they hear or they become hostile to the message. They don't just stop at unbelief, but they go on seeking to vindicate themselves. Speaking evil of that which they do not believe, imagining themselves to be right. And so what does Paul do in response to that as he responds to their unbelief? And this is instructive as well. This is another important principle for the Christian and the preacher. He withdraws himself. He goes, you see, only so far. He strives up to a point and then no farther. They spoke evil of the way and he departed from them and withdrew the disciples. Matthew Henry, when arguments and persuasions only harden men in unbelief and blasphemy, we must separate ourselves and others from such unholy company but that was not the end you see for he continued to reason daily in the school of Tyrannus, verses 9 and 10 and this continued we read for two years so that all who dwelt in asia heard the word of the lord jesus both jews and greeks well in a sense that's just the preface to what we see uh, that really grips our attention here in these verses. And, and, and that begins first with miracles in Ephesus, verses 11 and 12. Let me just read those verses again. Now, God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out from them. Well, once again, we find uh, the apostles working mighty works. They were given the power to perform miracles. And these miracles were given as ever as signs of the authority given to these men as authoritative witnesses of Jesus Christ. And by these signs, he attested to his authority at work in them. For Jesus had promised both. That his apostles would not only be witnesses to his resurrection, but they would perform many miracles in his name, even as he had done. And we might think uh, as well of what we read in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, that these are the works that Jesus, uh, or, or at least uh, in Luke, the works that Jesus began to do, giving us the sense that as he worked in the gospel, so he was still working. He was still performing miracles, only now he did so. <coughs> through the hands of his apostles, men like Paul. What's a miracle? That's a question we need to stop and ask ourselves at times, at times, especially because we want to know how much and to what extent Acts speaks to us today. Well, a miracle is a sign. I said that uh, just a moment ago, but let me clarify what I mean by that. A sign is something that demonstrates the truth of something. It is something, in other words, that accompanies the preaching. So the truth is made clear in the preaching and then through the sign, the truth is confirmed. 
But the miracle, you see, in that sense, never stands on its own. It's like a sacrament in that regard. The sacrament accompanies the preaching. The miracle accompanies the preaching. The the miracle in a more spectacular way, obviously, because what you have in the preaching when uh, the miracles are occurring is preaching that is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Preaching which deserves to be called revelation, the kind of preaching that you'd want to write down and it would become a book of the Bible. And God was confirming that through the miracles. But you see, the miracle doesn't stand on its own. Never in the Bible. They are signs that confirm the authority of the preacher, that he is heaven sent. Just as an aside, there's very few miracle workers in the Bible. I don't know that I ever realized that until I read J.I. Packer's Knowing God. You just have a handful of men in the Bible. Moses, Elijah, Elisha, Jesus, and the apostles. That's it. It is a sign that accompanies and confirms revelation. This explains why those who are preoccupied with miracles on their own are to be faulted. They don't understand what a miracle is. They don't understand the function of the miracle. It's a sign. You know, that's what John calls them in John's gospel. And that also explains, now I'm addressing the extent to which Acts speaks to us today, that also explains why miracles have ceased. Because God has ceased to speak by his apostles and prophets. You don't find inspired preachers today, not in the way you found in those days. But for now, God was still speaking. That is, in the days, these days we're reading of here in Ephesus. And so he was still adding his seal by these mighty works. You remember what Jesus said in the Gospels. If you don't believe me on account of my words, though you should then believe me on account of my works. Only believe. But what was unusual about these miracles? You see, I just said that miracles, even by the standard of the Bible, are unusual. They're not that common. But even uh, by that standard, these were unusual, Luke says. Something out of the ordinary. Luke says, God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. Well, it should be obvious, you read it, and and it does seem a little bit strange. What's strange about it was the fact that they were taking these handkerchiefs and they were sending them off and people were being healed just by touching them. Handkerchiefs or aprons, they were brought from his body to people who were sick and they were being healed and demons were being exercised, not by Paul commanding the demon to leave, but just this handkerchief that touched him and out went the demon. That was Even, uh, again, by this narrow view of the miracles, even then that was unusual. Another thing we could say that the exercising of a demon isn't something you see too often in Acts or in the Gospels or in the Bible. That's a rarer case of a miracle. But it's, it's the way his clothes were involved. Almost as though, though don't go this far or you'll end up like these, these uh, magicians. Almost as though there was something magical and special about the body of Paul. It was enough that he had touched these things and now these things touched the people and they would be healed. Now, that is almost without precedent in the Bible. Of course, it isn't. There is, there is an important precedent in the gospel 
uh, in all the Gospels, or at least the Synoptic Gospels, where the woman touches the hem of his garment and she's healed. She doesn't touch Jesus. She doesn't even speak to Jesus. She just grabs the hem of his garment and she's healed. There's something almost superstitious in her belief, and yet Jesus condescends to her and she is healed. Well, this was unusual, I'm saying. I won't try to explain it. I only say I believe it really happened like that. I really believe that they sent away Paul's handkerchiefs and people were healed when they touched them. I I was interested to read in the commentaries. uh, I'm almost embarrassed to say this because the commentaries feel the need to say this. I really shouldn't and neither should we. but, But they... They feel a need to explain this because so many have been embarrassed by this. Well, we shouldn't be embarrassed by this. No, I believe it really happened like that, just like that. But I also believe that there is no warrant for us to expect anything like this today. And you know what I mean. Or at least I think you do. Maybe you don't. But uh, I have seen this. I have seen I'm sorry to say there was a period in my life when I would watch the televangelist as a young Christian man. And the televangelist would say, well, I can't touch you, but I can touch this handkerchief and I can send it to you and you will be healed. Now, I'm saying that was a total farce. Uh, By the way, if you ever watched that, it was amazing that you couldn't get your piece of cloth unless you sent in your gift. (laughs) We should reject that sort of thing when it happens today because of our understanding of what a miracle is. Because of our understanding of God's revelation, which has ceased. But we should also believe that this is what happened in Paul's day. We had every right, or we have every right, to expect and to look for this sort of thing in the days of the apostle. Even if we are prone to say with Luke, you know, that's awfully strange. Well, I've showed you how men misapply that today. They say, I'm going to touch a handkerchief, you send in your money and you'll get your healing. But let us see how men were misapplying and abusing what Paul was doing in Paul's day. And so we see in the next place some Jewish exorcists. We read, uh, let me read that again as well. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call uh, the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exorcise you by The Jesus whom Paul preaches. You see, they didn't even do the handkerchief trick. They just, uh, they became inspired and they thought this is some sort of magic and we can conjure it for ourselves. It's important that we see the fallacy here. It's the same fallacy, or at least it is a similar fallacy to that of Simon Magnus, which is what we read earlier in chapter 8. Let us call it the mechanical view of salvation or the mechanical view of Of the Holy Spirit. His power. His saving work. As something that can be bought. In the case of Simon. Or brought under our control. And power. As in the case of these Jewish exorcists. Something like an incantation. You simply say. Now that's the view of false religion. That there is power simply in the right. There is power in the words. And so why wouldn't it work like that here? Why could it. I just simply say, in the name of Jesus, be cast out. Paul did it. Why can't I do it? Well, let us see 
also an, ele- an element of envy here. Not just a mechanical view, but there was something wrong with their hearts. In both cases, whether Simon or the Jewish exorcists, they desired wrongly to have what the apostles had. They weren't meant to have it. And you see, they wanted to be powerful like them. But what they desired was power, not salvation. They were preoccupied with the sign, not with what it signified. This reminds us of another thing that happens in the gospel when uh, the apostles or the disciples then, as they were called, uh, as they were called then, returned to Jesus, elated that the demons were subject to them. And Jesus said, you know, you ought not to rejoice that the demons are subject to you, but that your names are written in the book of life. I think that's a good illustration of what was occurring here. The only thing these men were interested in, and this is the danger of the of the superstitious view of Christianity and of the Holy Spirit, is that we're interested in this access of power, but not in salvation, which the power represents. Reminded of another thing that Jesus says in the Gospels concerning the signs. In a sense, Jesus says, you know, I'm willing to do them. But I really must say, I wish I didn't. Uh, only a wicked and a perverse generation seeks the sign. And you see the danger of the signs is that you become preoccupied with the signs themselves. And you say, I won't believe unless I see a sign. It's a wicked and a perverse generation, Jesus says, that wants the sign, but not the reality. And so, in essence, these men, with their superstitious view, were interested in adding another tool to their magical belt. The only rejoicing they wanted to be doing was not that their their names were written in the book of life, but was that which involved a kind of magical power. They had no interest in being brought captive by it themselves. On this, Matthew Henry comments, it was common, especially among the Jews, for persons to profess or to try to cast out evil spirits. If we resist the devil by faith in Christ, he will flee from us. But if we think to resist him by using Christ's name or his works as a spell or charm, Satan will prevail against us. And that's exactly what we see there. How uh, these men were overcome by the demon. Well, what I want you to see and what Matthew Henry is saying so helpfully is that the Christian has access to power. He has access to power over Satan. He has access to power, yes, over demons. But not in the way that these men thought or sought. It comes by believing. It comes by faith. Not by an incantation or superstition. Here's what, here's what Henry is saying. Here's what I'm saying to you. That the devil will flee from you. When you exercise faith, when you resist him as we are told to do, he'll flee from you. He's no match to the faith of a Christian. And this is a lesson that many Christians, well, I could say on the one hand, have learned, but I could also say on the other hand, have never learned. Many Christians live all their days without ever realizing that Satan will flee from you. That's not just the promise of Scripture. That is the experience that every Christian knows who's resisted him in faith. The Christian is able to stand up to the forces of the evil one and prevail. But listen, listen to me. 
when I say, along with Luke, you've got to be careful here. Because God is not mocked. And in a sense, we could go even further and say, neither are the demons. You can't fool a demon, you see. They aren't fooled by our superstition. False religion may charm our unbelieving hearts, but it will never dispel a demon. Do you see, and this is equally clear in the Gospels, even the demons know the difference between true and false religion. And how easily a demon might overcome the man who thinks Christianity consists in charms and spells. And again, that's what we see here. No, the power which we have to overcome the evil one consists of faith and contrition for sin. And above all, submission to Jesus Christ. You see, we don't bring his name into our service. That's the fallacy. True belief consists in this, bringing ourselves into his service. And then we will find out what his name can do for us. And yes, there is power in the name of Jesus, but not as men imagine. But let us go on to see in the last place, revival in Ephesus. To finish what Matthew Henry has to say about this text uh, from his condensed commentary. Surely if the word of God prevailed among us, Actually, let me let me read something first. We read about this uh, this spreading uh, the, the the name of Jesus was magnified, and many who believed came confessing and telling their deeds and so on. It's in light of that that Henry goes on to say, "Surely, if the word of God prevailed among us, many lewd, infidel, and wicked books." would be burned by their professors. Will not these Ephesian converts rise up in judgment against professors who traffic in such works for the sake of gain or allow themselves to possess them? If we desire to be in earnest in the great work of salvation, every pursuit and enjoyment must be given up, which hinders the effect of the gospel upon the mind or loosens its hold upon the heart. These are strong words, but words which are surely right. Here was a revival which broke out in Ephesus. Let us see, this is true power. Again, not as the exorcists or the magicians thought, but as God intended. Not a power which can be harnessed and exercised by man or bought by simony, but which is unleashed by the true preaching of the gospel. Let us see the power of the gospel not only to change individuals, but entire towns. As well as the evidence others note of its power to save. They saw the power not only in the preaching, but in those who were affected by it. How likely men are to believe when they behold its true power in others. Do you see how it happens? Fear fell on them all, Luke says. The name of Jesus was magnified. And they came confessing their sins. They were like those in Thessalonica, turning from idols to the living God, or in this case, turning from superstition, uh, which was even the worship of demons. Here was true repentance, the evidence of a lively faith, a picture of true conversion. what, What does that picture look like here? There is an eagerness to turn from sin. There is an eagerness to do so even at personal loss. 
and the possibility of public embarrassment. Oh, I want others to see what I've been doing. I want them to know what Jesus has delivered me from. And that I now do these things no more. If only that others might turn along with me. Again, you see, that's the power. It's not just in the preaching, but in the witness of those who've been affected by it. How eager the penitent is to tell others what God has done for him. And that's what they were doing here. It's an amazing spectacle. They took their books and they said, we don't want anything to do with exercising demons anymore. We now see the fallacy. We now see what fools we are. And we've come to experience true power, the power of the Holy Spirit. Here was a book burning. You know, that's that's something that isn't a very popular idea, is it? We read about book burnings in history and we think, well, that's a terrible thing. And yet here we have to say this was a holy happening. This was something truly wonderful when men took books that they used to use to make a living and now they burn them. They didn't sell them, they burned them. They said, may no man ever be ensnared by this folly again. Not a sign that something was wrong in history, not in this case then, but a sign that something was right. You know, this is often what you find in times of revival. Suddenly, the prevailing uh, sin, which is often uh, a good business in the town, it closes. It goes out of business. Men lose their interest in sinning. That's the power of Christianity. That's its most powerful aspect. Even at cost to themselves, verse 19, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. And Luke concludes, So the word of the Lord grew mightily, and it prevailed. It was prevailing in the lives of these Ephesians. The leaven of Christianity was spreading. Its power was being known. Its true power, which is seen in the conversion of guilty sinners, being added to God's church. I ask you in closing just this one question. Do you know anything about that? Let me read it again. The word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. The mighty power of God. Have you found this power in your own life? The power over your own sin? Or I could put it like this, and I confess to some extent I'm speaking figuratively, over your own demons. Do you know anything about the power of Christianity? You see, it isn't enough to read about it in a book and say, you know, I believe that happened. I want you to do that. And I've I've been doing that this evening. But I'm far more interested, even as Paul was in Ephesus, that you would know the power of Christianity and that you would testify to what Christ has done for you, that you would be eager for others to know, even as these men and women were here. That's the real power of Christianity. It's the power of deliverance. Those who were enslaved to sin. Even those who made a profit at sinning suddenly turned from their ways. John Stott calls these power encounters. And I'm here to say they're still happening. Power encounters. Have you ever had a power encounter with the Holy Spirit? You see, that's what we find in Ephesus. A power encounter isn't something you can harness or control. No, it's something rather... We could say harnesses and controls us. It's not something you can master. It's something that gains a mastery and a control over you. 
And has that happened to you? The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 6, and this is a good way of describing conversion. He says in verse 16 and following, Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked, though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you become you became slaves of righteousness. You've been delivered, Paul says. You've been given up to something new. You've become slaves of a new power. You see, it's not an absolute freedom. You've given up one kind of slavery. You've embraced another. And do you know anything about that? Well, here's my testimony about this church, even as uh, Luke gave his testimony about Ephesus. My testimony is, thank God many of you do. And thank God it is evident that the power of Christianity is being known in this place. Let me read again what Luke says. The word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Can, can I say of this church that the word of God is growing and that it's prevailing? I see it with my eyes. and Your lives are testifying it to me even as it did in Ephesus. Men and women have turned from their sins in the sight of all. They have embraced the power of Christianity. They've been mastered by it. They've accepted it. Or you, let me say you, you've accepted this new form of slavery, not to sin, but to righteousness. You are content now to call Jesus Christ your master, no longer sin, but Jesus. And in the way, or in this way, we can say, Happily, the word of the Lord is growing mightily with us and it's prevailing. Thank God it is so. Only I say, in addition to that, pray, pray, beloved, that it might continue to be so among us. That we might say in days to come, the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Amen. And let us return our praise to God by standing together and singing hymn 288.